Good morning. Welcome to this edition of China Takes Over the World. This is Ying Ma. With the 21st anniversary of the June 4th, 1989 massacre、uh, soon upon us, we pose this question: Can China take over the world while remaining unfree and undemocratic? We are very pleased to have with us Andrew Nathan, a longtime China watcher and the class of 1919 professor of political science at Columbia University. Professor Nathan, it's great to have you with us. Welcome to. The show. Thank you. You once wrote that, like all non-democratic systems in the modern era, the Chinese system suffers from a birth defect that it cannot cure. The fact that an alternative form of government is more legitimate. How well do you think the Chinese government is coping with this birth defect at the moment? Well, they're doing a good job、uh, controlling the information that people get, despite the existence of internet and social media. They're doing a good job of delivering performance to the people, economic growth, and international power and influence. And they're doing a good job also of scaring people who might want to challenge and question them. You know, people are pragmatic and they understand that they. Need to stay within the red lines, but I still think that most Chinese who are curious or who think, you know, which is a large middle class of Chinese and and many workers and peasants as well,、um, <clears throat> feel that the current form of the regime is not really the best form. And even the government says that itself. It says that we have to build socialist democracy. We have to improve rule of law. We have to. You know, move on in our political system. So, I think that the government does a good job, but it really can't cover up the fact that it is、um, not a modern uh, uh, form of government that's suited to a modern, developed, educated society. Right, right. And since the current Xi Jinping Li Keqiang regime.、Um, Assumed power in China, the leadership has pledged to make all kinds of bold reforms, and and as you said, you know they want to reform the、uh, the rule of law, and and then they've also pledged to get rid of the hated、uh, reform through labor system. They want to relax the one child policy, and Xi Jinping has has been very aggressive in fighting corruption, or at least. Um, making it as if he's serious about fighting corruption. Do you think these and other measures, if implemented the right way, will prolong the longevity of the Communist Party and increase its legitimacy, or do you think they will only postpone the inevitable, which is China's transformation to a different kind of political system? Well, and the, the reforms that you mentioned are some of the reforms, but they also have positioned themselves now as what they call a service government. Right, right. And they're building a social welfare system, a health insurance system, and stuff like that. All of which I think is good. You know, I, I really give credit to the regime for trying to do these things. It remains to be seen how successfully they do it, but these are good programs, and I, I do think that there's a chance that that will. Um, you know, support the legitimacy of the regime and prolong the regime if they can do a good job of these things. But I think a regime like this is always vulnerable to some event breaking out, <clears throat> an economic crisis or a political crisis of some sort, which might occur within the regime or a, or, a, or some kind of scandal that really makes everybody really angry. And and in a case like that, any government might have a crisis, but a democratic government is more likely to survive. Just get rid of the particular incumbent prime minister or president, and 
elect a new one while the system continues on. But this system doesn't have that type of flexibility, I don't right, think. Right, sure. And do you think that in today's China, it's likely that a Tiananmen Square style type of mass protest movement could occur? Or do you think that since 1989, the regime has put in place enough measures to prevent those types of movements from materializing or maturing? Yeah, I can't say it's likely because I do think they've, they're very, very alert to any threat and they arrest people before anybody can get anything going and they they're trying to stay ahead of all of those kinds of challenges but it seems to me that this is a situation and just one single mistake right you know would be enough uh to set a, a spark and 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 there is the always i think the possi- enough disaffection in the population for the possibility of a movement like that to spring up We are speaking with Professor Andy Nathan of Columbia University. Please join the conversation by sending us a message on Facebook at facebook.com slash China takes over or on Twitter at Rising China. There's a lot of talk these days about U.S. containment of China and China's neighbors, such as the Philippines and, and Japan, have grown increasingly wary of what they perceive as Chinese aggression in territorial disputes. And their fears and suspicions have certainly been fueled at least in part by the fact that China China is a communist uh, uh, country. Do you think that communism is affecting not only China's domestic governance, but also hindering its rise or at least um, putting up roadblocks in its foreign policy? I think so. Um, it's not necessarily communism in the ideological sense of mm-hmm. the left-right division that people are suspicious of, but the fact that it's an authoritarian government, that it lacks transparency, um, means that its its strategies are not very clear to people, and there's a history of governments of this type being aggressive, and of democratic governments being more cautious about aggression. So I think a lot of what China's doing now is understandable as a national interest, a national security interest, because China's been in an unfavorable position in the international system, and it has a national interest that it needs to pursue. But the way that an authoritarian government pursues these interests, I think, definitely creates a lot of suspicion among its neighbors and also in the West, in the United States and Europe. And human rights issues continue to be really a big issue, even though the West isn't able to, um, you you know, do anything effective to make the Chinese government improve human rights. Yet, on the other hand, the issue won't go away, and it creates suspicion. What do you think a rapidly rising democratic China would look like? Would it, at least on the foreign policy front, would would its foreign policy be very different from today's China? Well, I think it would, for one thing, it would be much more attractive to Taiwan, and the Taiwan issue could be negotiated in a, uh, you know, mutually satisfactory way, and probably it would handle the issues of Tibet and Xinjiang in a different way, and those are partly foreign policy issues. And I think it would probably be more 
uh, it would have less tension with the U.S., and so that would reduce tension in Asia. But I suppose that a more democratic China would still want to insist on its territorial claims in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Um, and uh, it, it might put more pressure on North Korea. It might, uh, you know, so I think there would be quite a few adjustments in the policy, but you would still see a democratic China wanting to be a major power and wanting to expand its navy and to protect its interests. On the territorial dispute front, would a democratic China have a worse relationship with Vietnam, which is communist? <laughs> yeah. So, and and the two are currently engaged in this very tense standoff. So, even if China would would you know would be more receptive to better relations with Taiwan and 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 the U.S., how would that pan out with Vietnam? Well, we're talking about something very hypothetical. Yes. <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, so uh, the, some of the issues that China has with Vietnam are not going to go away under any circumstance, sure. I think. There are territorial disputes and there's a common border. There's a long history of Vietnamese uh, suspicion of Chinese influence, sort of like the U.S. and Mexico, you might say, which are two <laughs> democracies that have quite a few frictions between them. But... Um, but I, I wouldn't think that a democratic China would pick an ideological battle with Vietnam and try to promote democracy the way that <laughs> the, way that the U.S. often does, you know, with other countries. So I, I agree with you that the, you know, many basic issues would still be there. Would a democratic China be rising as fast as as it is now or do you think that there's something to the leader the chinese leadership's argument that democracy now would just create endless chaos in chinese society and the chinese people are just not ready for that mm -hmm. well of course i don't share that view, <laughs> obviously and i think a lot it's a kind of self-fulfilling thing if the leadership wants to make democracy something that's chaotic they probably have that capability, but it doesn't have to be that way. A lot of it depends on the leadership. So, uh, and, and also the so-called chaos of democracy is, I would say, is a sort of superficial thing. I mean, if you look at a country like um, the U.S. or a place like Taiwan, where there's a lot of, uh, you know, ugly stuff on the surface, you know, debates and, and uh you know, what we call politics in a democracy that's kind of disgusting. But at the same time, the system gradually does find a way to a consensus. It makes policies, it, it moves ahead, it makes mistakes, but it also does a lot of correct things and it hangs together. And in the case of an authoritarian system, it might look very effective for a period of time, but it also can make horrible mistakes. And I think the Chinese authoritarian system has made horrible mistakes, like the big famine in the late 1950s and the Cultural Revolution and some of the, you know, pollution problems and, and uh, major construction problems and the whole issue of corruption and the, the re, uh, hiding away of the HIV-AIDS crisis and all these kinds of things. So... I'm afraid that no government is really perfect, but I think that authoritarian governments make a lot of mis big mistakes.
Well, we um, want to uh, return to the question we posed at the beginning of this segment, which is: Can China take over the world while remaining communist? We've got about um, a minute left, so Professor Nathan, I wonder if you. And, and I, in many ways, you've already kind of answered that question, but I wonder if you have a brief response to well, that. Well, part of it is not about whether it's communist or not, but where China's located on the map of the world. It's in Asia. It's surrounded by more than a dozen other countries, including very big independent countries like Russia, Japan, India. You mentioned Vietnam. I don't think that China can even take over its neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Much less take over the world. It depends a bit on what you mean by take over the world. But I don't think <laughs> that the U.S. is going to disappear, or Japan is going to disappear, or Russia, or the EU, or Germany are going to disappear. So I think China's rise is actually more of a good thing than a bad thing. It's uh, it deserves to have a role in the world, but in terms of taking over, I think that's an exaggerated fear. Uh, well, we also named the show China Takes Over the World uh, with the purpose of being provocative, and we are exploring a number of the different ways that China could take over the world, whether it's via finance, via economics, via business, and, of course, their national security issues, too. But um, we have been chatting with Professor Andy Nathan, the class of 1919 professor of political science at Columbia University. Uh, professor, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Please send us your comments on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Good morning. Uh, thanks for tuning in to China Takes Over the World. This is Ying Ma. We are approaching the 25th anniversary of the massacre of peaceful student democracy protesters at Tiananmen Square on June 4th, 1989. With us to mark the occasion is Mr. Wang Junhao, a prominent leader of the democracy movement who was punished by Beijing in 1990 with a jail sentence of a. 13 years. In 1994, he was released and exiled to the United States, and today he lives in the New York City area. Junhao, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you.、Uh, do you remember where you were and what you were doing on June 4th, 1989, when the Chinese government opened fire on protesters、uh, in Tiananmen Square? Well, so actually, it's、uh, the open fire. On the eve of June third,、mm-hmm. and at, at that time,、uh, I was、uh, in a small hotel in the an urban of Beijing, and about ten、uh, bus stops away from Tiananmen Square. And that time, I was waiting to some friends. Every evening, and during the movement, every evening we held the meeting to discuss the situation and.、Uh, What's the strategy for next day movement? So I was waiting there, and I heard、uh, the, the driver dropped me in the hotel. But a half hour later, he came back. He said、uh, the major road, the Fuxing Road,、uh, cut off, and、uh, the soldiers fired at students and citizens. And some people died. And then I realized、uh, the meeting we couldn't、uh, hold. In that evening, right? You couldn't go on, right? Yeah. Well, during those heady days prior to June fourth, did you think the government was in fact going to budge and undertake 
the reforms demanded by the student protesters, or did you already sense that more ominous things were to come? Well, so I believe that the, if you know we couldn't reach a peaceful agreement before the by the May thirty first. And the government would fare, and the army would fare as students and citizens, but most of people didn't believe it. So I was trying to convince them and also told them by the May 31st, if we couldn't reach agreement, I would withdraw. And on May 31st, I withdraw two of my colleagues, Liu Gang and Zhang Men, from Tiananmen Square and send them to the uh, out of Beijing, and uh, then I de- I decided to leave out Beijing on June 1st. Uh, however, Liu Xiaobo and Zhou Du approached me on June 1st, and they said uh, they will take hunger strike uh, starting at, on the June 2nd and to June 4th, and then they said uh, I should uh, in the host the press conference for their hunger strike. Then I stayed for a couple of days. And so on June 2nd, I hosted the, the press conference. And then, you know, the, on the second day, the, on the following day, the soldiers fired students. And I then I tried to do my best to save people, you know, those kind of key figures, Bao Zunxin, Wang Dan, and uh, the other key figures. And I sent them out of Beijing. And then I, leave out, I left out Beijing on June 7th with Bao Zunxin and Wang Dan. And we went to Harbin, and then from Harbin we flew for Shanghai, and then we took the boat to the middle of the river. And when you later attempted to escape from China, but were captured by the authorities, am I right? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, we and actually when we were in Harbin, and uh, uh, Professor Fang Liji and. Uh, his wife went to the, uh, the I mean, the, to the United States uh, embassy. Uh, embassy in yeah, Beijing, embassy. Right. And, uh, yeah, in Beijing. And then one then talked to me if was our next move. And I said I will stay in China, but if he want to leave off, I will send him. And he said he also want to stay in China okay. to and face the, the, you know, what we showed. Sure, yeah. sure, and and of course, you know, you you've mentioned some very famous names in the democracy movement. Uh, Wang Dan, Fang Liji, and Liu Xiaobo, of course, are very um, prominent um, uh, political dissidents from China as well. And Liu Xiaobo, of course, uh, won the was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, I believe, was it two thousand ten or uh, well or two thousand twelve. Um, uh, what what was on your mind when you were captured by the by the authorities in China? And uh, you mean uh, at that time or now? Late, so, so soon after the massacre um, uh, on Tiananmen so, Square, when you were captured by the authorities, what, what went through your mind at that time? Well, just uh, I, I thought, okay, it's over. You know, the, after the crackdown, I tried to hide myself in the mountain in the middle of China for four months. Mm-hmm. And then my friend tried to save me. They tried to send me to Hong Kong. You know the yellow bird uh, plan. I was the last one. When I got right, then the government, uh, you know the, uh, you know, stop the plan. Arrest several key figures. 
Then, but uh, you know, when at the, in the, during the four months, I saw that I should go to the police and to say I, you know, I will take responsibility for the movement. However, just because my colleague, you know, who tried to hide me, had to hide me, and then he got arrested, and I didn't know what he say during detention, so I should wait. And then at that time, you know, the uh, Chinese government tried to convince one of my friends. They didn't. Uh, they would not uh, sentence me because I want the peaceful solution. And then my friend helped them to get me. He cooperated with them and asked. What one of your friends cooperated with the authorities to help them well, capture he, you? He, yeah, he asked. Uh, he asked my friend in Wuhan who held who had me in the mountain uh-huh. and uh, asked them to send me to Changsha train station. Uh-huh. He met there and he said he would arrange my uh, escape out of China. And I told my friend I didn't want to leave off China, but uh, then my friend said it's too late to say that, uh, you know, the, I had to go to see my friend and tell, to tell him I didn't want and then let them to arrange my next move. And uh, when I arrived at Changsha station, I got arrested. The Chinese government uh, said, uh, you know, on the newspaper, People Daily and the Xinhua News Agent said, uh, I got arrested in Zhenjiang, Guangdong province I, when I was trying to escape, escape out of China. It's not true. It's a lie. I see. I see. We are speaking with uh, Wang Jintao, a prominent Chinese pro-democracy activist, who is currently exiled in the United States. Please send us your comments on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. Well, China today is the second largest economy in the world. Its economic, political and military power seems to grow day by day. Are you surprised by the longevity and the resilience of the Communist Party? No, I didn't. You know, I do not surprise. Even when China, you know, without the 1989, you know, the crackdown, China can maintain that over 10 percent of growth rates. The I mean, the fastest rates, developed rates in the world. And I think if you just look at Chinese history, give them 30 years of peaceful time, they will make the country the best. And uh, now the Chinese Communist Party spent the 60 years, just the second power, I think uh, they did the bad uh, record in the history, in Chinese history. So so you're not surprised that the the government has been so resilient over the years? No, it's not resilient. If you look at the Chinese history, it's different from other countries. You know, for the Western European countries, they have very short time ruled by absolute uh, absolutism, but uh, in China we have two thousand years of you know history. During the two thousand, many you know dynasty maintained over hundred years and uh, gave them the twenty to thirty years they would become the best uh, you know the country in the world. I mean, if you look at Chinese history, it's not surprising. Uh, what? Uh, but, uh, what do you think are the prospects for dem- democratization in China? Well, I think that democracy is another. I mean, uh, uh, the still, you know, we have a uh, lot of people want democracy, even though they don't know it's democracy. If you talk to Chinese, uh, and um, most of Chinese don't uh, 
I mean, just in the plain words, you talk about the principle of political uh, regime. They always, most of Chinese support democracy principle, but they don't know they are democracy. For example, do you think the people should elect their in the rulers, or do you think the rulers should pick up their successor? And most of China believe this. They will say, we like elect be. I mean rulers, and also if you ask the people, do you trust, you know, the absolute power? They will say no. They trust. I mean, they want the power to balance each other. I mean, the, most of Chinese like a constitutional democracy just because the Chinese government banned it, and also they have some propaganda to cover their, I mean, some facts and ban some information about reality. So. They can maintain their rule, but uh, now uh, more and more Chinese protest against uh, the local authority and uh, the central government. Uh, I believe in a couple of years there will be big uh, events happening in China again, like uh, you know the 1989 movement. In in a couple of years. Yeah, in a couple of years. Well, I think well, if if the show is still around at that time, we're going to have to have you back in a couple of years. <laughs> Yeah, well, so, I mean, <laughs> and, and 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 yeah, and, of and, course, uh, yeah. and, uh, and uh, <laughs> I hope I stand in Beijing and stand in the at Tiananmen Square you, again. You interview me. <laughs> <laughs> the um, well, do, do you, regardless of what the the timeline might be, do you think that China can sustain its meteoric rise without ultimately undergoing real political reform? And and we've got about thirty seconds left. Oh no! I, I, but I don't believe any government authority, without the balance, without the check, without independent media, without the rule of law, independent judicial system. I don't trust those kind of government. And, and you don't think China can sustain its its impressive uh, results no. or growth or or other other improvements no, over the well, long run? Yeah, I think that economic development can be maintained. However, they will. Face the big protest everywhere. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, we have been speaking with Mr. Wang Junhao, a prominent Chinese democracy activist who was a leader of the democracy movement in 1989, and um, and is currently living in the New York City area. Junhao, thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. Please send us your comments on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.